Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. So I'd like to welcome Judge Jules to the Tales from the Dance Floor podcast. Nice to have you here, mate. Thank you very much. Awesome. Well, listen, you, you know, up there with Carl Cox, Paul Oakenfold and names like and Pete Tong and names like that from the, the first wave, the first kind of European wave of dance taking over the world. Your, your name's right up there. Uh, and it's uh, great to talk to you because your knowledge of the UK, Ibiza, how clubbing's developed, the kind of business side of of, of this game is, is kind of second to none and there's so much I want to talk to you about I know we've only got half an hour so I'd like to kind of um, start off by asking you a question you must get asked a lot which is how do you square your life as a music industry lawyer with your life which has continued to this day as a international touring DJ? Well I didn't really intend to square it I, I mean the issue I have is and it's very kind of you to to talk about me in the same light as some of those luminaries who were the first generation of so-called name DJs is that I had nobody um, kind of, if you like, ahead of me in the career trajectory to look at as an example of what one would do when one sort of exits one's 40s goes into one's 50s etc so I um when I was in my 30s, I thought, you know, I've got no idea here, but I've got a plan for the future. I've got family, got to be sensible, got to be circumspect. I've, you know, I've done okay financially and, and career-wise, but at the same time, I've got to make plans for the rest of my life here. So I went back to law school while still touring as a DJ um, and basically re-qualified to be um, a lawyer, always knowing that it would be a music specialist lawyer that was my sort of vocation. I didn't really want to be somebody who was defending criminals in the middle of the night and get being called out to police cells or indeed, you know, buying or selling property or any, any of the other stuff that, that lawyers do. No, it was a, it was intended to be something that was a, a sort of logical um, next step, if you like, from being a DJ. Unbeknown to me, unfortunately, fast forward sort of uh, beyond 10 years when I am now a practicing lawyer with a, with a good practice, um, the DJ side of things wouldn't Wayne, if anything, the DJ side of things has grown stronger in the past five years. Um, so I'm now living this kind of parallel existence, which takes up an awful lot of hours because the one thing about being a DJ is you can't simply turn up and go. You've got to, there's a, so much prep um, involved making records. Um, I do a weekly podcast, do a weekly radio show that gets syndicated. Um, notwithstanding staying abreast of all the new tunes um so there's a so that really is a full-time career in its own right as is being a lawyer because yes my uh the experience and the commercial um stuff i've learned over probably one of the broadest uh careers in the music industry out there in that i've been a radio presenter run labels for you for majors been a and r being a promoter being um music maker producer i mean you name it the only thing i was never is a music publisher i've done pretty much everything else so um but bringing that to the table uh, has actually built me a client base quite quickly as a lawyer um and 
But the thing is, I, I have to give that my all. It's no, it's no consolation to anybody that I'm representing if I'm out there on a Saturday night and a Friday night DJing, if that in any way impacts upon my ability to deliver a first-class service on a, on a Monday morning or whenever it is I'm back in the office, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, some people will say, how the hell do you do it? You know, I mean, how do you do it? Is it, is it organisation? Are you... Are you different to other people? How does it, how does it kind of, I, I guess the idea was to kind of calm down a bit, right? Yeah, and I've calmed down a bit to the extent that I pretty much only DJ at weekends. Apart from the Ibiza season where I do the odd midweek, uh, the, the festival season where there's the odd midweek, but it's pretty much weekends only. So that to that extent, it has calmed down on the DJ front. But actually the spade work that one needs to do for, for two gigs a week or three maximum over the course of a weekend is no different from the spade work that's required to do more and do the midweek shows. So, um, I mean, I guess it's a combination of being very organized because you've got to be and being quite hardworking. I mean, it's a, I'm doing two full-time jobs and I don't intend to, do, if I'm going to do two full-time jobs, I'm going to do them as well as somebody is doing them as their only job. But that's the only, really, the, the, that, uh, when you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, should I be doing this? And if I can look at myself and uh, ultimately be answerable to myself about the, the, the energy and the dare I say ability that I put into both these two jobs and, and, and I can say I'm doing them as well as I possibly could, then, then fabulous. And I think that is the case really. So, you know, again, I just want to come back to that is, is what, what makes you do it when you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm doing two full-time jobs. I'm, I'm financially doing all right. I've been doing this for three decades. Uh, I could slow down now and there's going to be no material kind of cost to me or my family or to my future what is it what's the drive to to stay basically double as busy as anyone else um I, it just doesn't feel like work i mean such elements of being a lawyer can feel like work because um you are less in control of your own if you like the the speed of of what you do and and what i do know in any given week as a lawyer is i'm going to be juggling probably 50 different matters some of which are kind of contracts some of which are transfers of intellectual property rights some of which are just disputes so i don't know what those are going to be i can't predict what they will be next week for example but i know there'll be 50 different things on average that i'm working on at any given moment in time some of which are very pressing others of which i'm waiting on others to come back to me on um but so that, it's a juggling act. It's just juggling yeah, act. That, um, that energy, I really enjoy. It's like it's um, it's a sort of more desk bound version of the craziness that I experienced for twenty plus years of of going round and round the world and never really resting. And I think um, you need to when you are mega busy, and I, you know, dare I say, it, I am mega busy. You need to take stock of yourself and make sure you're actually happy and. Um, you, you shouldn't absorb yourself because sometimes workaholism uh, can be a sort of, uh, if you like, a sticking plaster to cover up cover up for a greater ills. But mm. I, I have, I'd like to think I've sort of take, taken stock of myself, who I am, um, who I am in relation to my family, whether I love what I do, whether I'm whether I'm happy deep down, and I and I think it's fair to say that you know tick all of those boxes. But at the same time, there are where you are working hundred odd hours a week. It's quite a it's quite a tough one. So I mean, you've got um, kids who are kind of about the age where they're gonna they're gonna leave home, right? Um, am, am I right? Kind of around that age. One is, so, one isn't, yeah. So you've got kind of this twenty years behind you of having a family. How much has this kind of lifestyle, whether before you, uh, you know, in inverted commas, retired um, uh, or after? How how much has it impacted on family life? Is there anything you regret you'd have done differently, or have you managed to balance that in get that? 
kind of fit, fitted in as well? Well, I think when you work hard and you and you get the material sort of rewards that come out of working hard, it's very important to realise that actually the ultimate material reward that you can give to anybody is love and attention and not being so absorbed in your own world that you forget about what's really important. Of course, that's your kids and your and your other half, your, your special other, other half. Um, and of course, what I do and the amount of hours that I devote to it do take a little bit of a toll. But at the same time, I'm, I'd like to think I spend a lot of quality time with the family as well. Um, and it's, it's sort of embraced within my world in that we own, we've got some uh, property abroad. I try and sort of incorporate DJ trips and holidays um, into the same so that, um, yeah, to, to just try and keep family life as buoyant as it possibly can be. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of, that kind of, well, I think a lot of people will be listening to this saying, well, I couldn't do that, but it seems like you found a kind of, a kind of way of, uh, of doing that. I want to talk to you about relevancy. I want to talk to you about the fact that some DJs kind of rise and fall and are of their generation. A lot of people in our community are kind of coming back to DJing now and they've, they've had the career and they've had the family and this itch that they're scratching hasn't gone away. So they kind of get back into it. And they say things like, you know, I look at the, I look at the, um, the lineups and everyone's changed from, from back in my day, but a few people have managed to kind of stay there and stay doing it and stay relevant. What's the secret of basically playing to a new generation every few years and keeping that that relevancy as a DJ? I think you you either move with music and you like what's coming out or you get entrenched in this mindset where you think everything was better yesterday. And um, it's very easy to view the past with rose-tinted spectacles because you all you do is you look at a certain year. Let's say we look at, I don't know, 2001 – and, we, and all we do is remember the great records, the absolute musical monsters from that given year. And we forget that actually there was a lot of dross as well that came out at the same time. So when you, when you fast forward to the present day, when you're listening to records week in, week out, you forget perhaps you, you have to look equally hard to find that small crop of truly outstanding, memorable tracks that you'll be remembering 10 years henceforth. Um, and for me, it's... Uh, I actually really love a lot of stuff coming out at the moment. And and fundamentally, when you're in the music business, it's easy to to get subsumed in a kind of mindset where it's all a bit of a conveyor belt, where you don't stop to think why you're in the business in the first place. You're so absorbed in the, the music business that you forget about uh, the first word in that in that, that duo and you, you concentrate too heavily on the second. And for me, the, mu- the love for music has never died. And... It's almost like when you're when you're out there performing in front of a crowd, provided you've done your spade work, provided you've rooted out the best new tunes that you still love, and you're convinced that you, your taste still um, works on a dance floor, then when you're totally and utterly absorbed in a set, and not every DJ set is going to be as rewarding uh, crowd-wise as as the next one, but thankfully the vast majority are. Um, you. Um, that's what keeps, it's that buzz. It's that find the tunes, um, throughout the week, listen to loads and loads of stuff, discard it, hone those maybe five to 10 records in that week that are the real, really special ones. Look forward to going out and playing them. Um, think as you listen to the better tracks in a given week, wow, I, this such and such a gig that I'm looking forward to. That's, I can't wait to play it there. And it's that anticipation of taking what you have listened to and ferreted out uh, and playing it to a big audience that really is what got 
any DJ into DJing in the first place. It's um, a love of music and a, and a desire to kind of go out there and expose it to the world. So I was going to ask you about your music because I've, I've followed you since the, the late 80s and I, um, I'm interested in what you would call your sound, if you like, because you've seen whole genres come and go uh, and any DJ that's been doing this for more than, you know, the time it takes for a genre to shine and then dip again has got this um, dilemma. Do they change their genre? Do they kind of like reinvent themselves? Or, And I think the successful DJs end up with a few traits, if you like, or a few, you know, sonic elements or a few things that repeat enough for them to think, yep, that, well, whatever genres are to come, that's always going to be something that interests me. And I read you once saying, you know, you're attracted to songs that have got a kind of menacing minor key kind of edge to them. And that always stuck in my mind. And I always thought, well, if I get a chance, I'll ask you more about that. Are there elements, whether they're vocal elements or percussion elements or musical elements that have always attracted you, whatever the year, whatever the decade, whatever the genre? Oh, I definitely think the minor key thing is is very important. And um, and minor key records work equal, equally well in whether they're in a more downbeats of a techno melodic techno house or or if you go more upbeat into the trance spectrum um and ironically it's when musical genres have moved away from minor keys that i've found myself disenchanted with them and actually um edm which started out as a sort of bastardization of of trance and then went really major key to kind of appease american mainstream radio um turn me right off because it just wasn't in the key that I liked, even though the elements, the constituent elements were, were things I liked, you know, heavy, hard, heavy kicks, bright, a bright uh, sound and some sort of big bass lines, but it was just all too major key. And I, and actually a lot of trance um, regrettably moved away from that, from the minor key sound. So, so actually I find myself, not that I, I think it's important to have a broad taste, especially when you've been around for a long time, and to be able to kind of turn your hand to slightly different things in different gigs. But at the same time, yeah, the common you've got to have a common thread. And for me, that common thread is a slightly uh, a slightly eerie atmosphere to a record. It doesn't um, – yeah. you can have that eerie minor key atmosphere without necessarily being um, washed over with loads of chords. It might That might just be in the bass line and the, the use of samples, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know you like people, like, and, I, and I won't be able to pronounce his name, but Yves de Reuter, I think his, his name is from, from, I think he's Belgian, isn't he? That's right. And that, you know, that kind of sound from that time had that minor key edge, didn't it? It was a big part of it. It was never too happy deliberately. Well, um, and- so, but I think if you look at new, you know, a new crop of producers like Camel Fat or Frank Noir, yeah. for example, who are making House, they're pretty much doing the same thing, just slightly slowed down. Um, yeah, it, it does. It does go across the genres. Yeah. Okay. So, so how musical trained are you? Do you play instruments? Did you have any formal musical training? Yeah, I played a couple of <clears throat> I played a couple of instruments quite badly when I was a kid. I mean, I when I first started, um, when I first got a studio together, I, I I played a lot of the stuff that I made, but I did it on a, you know I could do it by notating it on a on a computer. I couldn't give you a live rendition on a keyboard. So um I'm musical enough to be able to make things without being particularly yeah. musical, I suppose. Okay, yeah. So I want to talk to you about the Ministry of Sound compilations because for a lot of people, certainly of a certain age, they will remember you basically as the face of them because you mixed uh, how many was it? A dozen or something? It was it was a lot, wasn't it? Loads, yeah, plenty. Yeah, probably more. Um what did that do for you? How many of them sold? How big of a, a part of your DJing career, you know, uh, success could you pin on 
basically being the face of Ministry of Sounds mixed compilations for so, so long. I mean, they were huge, weren't they? They were shifting millions of units. They were. And it was, you know, the, before the internet, and in fact, before broadband, not, I mean, the internet was around at the time in the ministry compilations, but high speed internet probably wasn't in the heyday of the ministry compilations. There weren't yeah. really very many ways you could get your name internationally known. Um, yes, of course, you could make records, but making records is... Um, there aren't that many dance artists who've consistently made great records. It's always been a bit hit and miss. I'm, dare I say it myself included, I've made some good records and some records I'm less, less proud of. It's only, there's only a handful of artists like the Chemical Brothers or Fatboy Slim um, or on a more commercial level in the early 90s, probably people like M People who, who consistently made hits. So the reality is that pre-broadband, pre-high-speed internet, when pre-SoundCloud, pre-Facebook Live, pre-Spotify... Um, there weren't many w ways to break out of the UK. Um, obviously, I had Radio 1, but Radio 1 couldn't be received very readily abroad either. So there, there, were, there were really only two things. There was Mixmag, which seemed to be a very important international calling card, and even more so the Ministry compilations because they were the biggest selling dance music compilations of all time. They exported amazingly. They sold in just crazy numbers. I mean, I've got gold, silver, and platinum discs. I mean, dare I say, I've got so many that they're kind of sitting in the basement because I ran out of places to put them. And that's not me being some sort of ignorant git. It's because there were just it was just such a successful period for those albums. But, you know, rather than dwell on the kind of, I don't know, the trophies of their success, more better to dwell on the extreme impact they had on my international um, reputation because obviously they were the ultimate calling card. Yeah, so they kind of went before you and uh, and carried your sound in the same way that production carries people's sounds nowadays. I guess uh, you kind of need to have have a production career in order to in order to get gigs outside your neighbourhood and outside your network. Uh, you've done a lot of producing, haven't you? I think a lot of people probably wouldn't realise quite how much. I have. I didn't. It wasn't until the last ten years, really, that I used my name very much because during the heyday mm. of my time on Radio One, I was a little bit nervous i felt it was just one step too far into conflict of interest to be playing um my records and then saying this is the new one by me judge jules so i worked under a number of different uh, nom de plumes like angelic highgate um and those those latter two in particular were, were quite successful chart wise and sales wise um because the bbc you know bbc is a unique institution and you can't you can't just you couldn't make it the judge jules show if you like yeah, yeah. And you, in, funnily enough, in a way that you probably can now, if you've got a podcast or something that's got lots of people listening, it's kind of expected, isn't it? As big names to, to, to break their own material, but times change. I'd like you to talk about Radio 1 for a bit, because for those people listening outside of the UK, you will know Radio 1 because you'll know Pete Tong's Essential Selection, which of course has got the same kind of worldwide appeal that the, the ministry compilations uh, had in their day. Uh, but for those people in the UK, of course, it needs no introduction. How did you get the gig on Radio 1 uh, and what was the experience like? Well, I've been on, I, I started out on Pirate Radio for a couple of years when I was very young, when I was about 18. Um, got snapped up by the then Pirate Radio station Kiss FM um, whilst it was Pirate. It became the first dance music Pirate station to get a license. It became a London wide, or London and the home counties wide station in 1990 um re fairly rapidly um i got myself a friday night and a saturday night show so two very 
um, sort of prime time shows in terms of the music I was playing. Uh, did that for six or seven years and then was then poached by Radio One at a time when they'd poached uh, a couple of other Kiss DJs before me. They'd poached Danny Rampling and Trevor Nelson, I think. A few other people went after that. Dave Pierce was around the same time too. So there was a big movement of people from Kiss through to... Um, through to Radio 1 at the time. The, the kind of, um, I don't know, the, the, the gestation process is slightly different with Radio 1 now in that a lot of um, DJs start life on One Extra, which is the sort of slightly more minor sister station of Radio 1. And many, many move, make that move. But at the time, it was all about uh, poaching both presenters and backroom staff from from Kiss. And I was one of those. And I, um, Radio 1 really is the pinnacle of any any uh, specialist music DJ's aspiration. Um because it treats playing new music as a virtue uh, rather than on many commercial stations where playing new music is deemed almost a bit of a liability commercially. So people who are outside of the UK might not know that Radio 1 is a public funded station. People pay uh, a fee to, to our national broadcaster and that's what allows it to happen. And I agree with you, it is quite quite unique in that respect. Um, and that went on for a long time. You still have a uh, syndicated radio show. You can get it on SoundCloud and 80 stations or something worldwide. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it's called the Global Warm Up. It's about up. It's nearly at its 800th edition. So it's been going for um, the best part of 15 years throughout. Uh, a lot of the time I was doing my Radio 1 show, in fact. I was on Radio 1 for 15 years. Uh, that stopped five years ago. The global warm-up has been going for the past 15 years. So wow. So, I don't quite remember the exact dates of all of those, but that hopefully that makes some sense. So presumably, I want to talk to you about partnerships because presumably you have a producer or someone who helps you with the radio show. You don't sit there kind of with with your uh, with your laptop open doing it all yourself. And um, how important a partnership has been? Like your driver um, back in the day became your partner in Judgment, Judgment Sundays in Ibiza, for instance. Um and I believe your your you've worked closely with your brother, who was um, was he in the was did he run the Serious Talent Agency, if I remember rightly. I've always just thought there's a kind of family business thing going on with you and your career. Is that maybe part of the key to getting so much done? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of that is um, dealing with the quite obvious point of dealing with people you trust, but also. I was in the beginning of dance music, if you like, when uh, it wasn't like you could um, employ, uh, put up an advert or put the word around you wanted to employ somebody and you'd get um, 15 different candidates with the perfect CV who'd all done the right stuff within, in and around the industry because there just wasn't enough of an industry for people to have that degree of experience. Mm. Therefore, you tended to, to go instinctively towards the people that you knew and trusted and um in some uh, and try i wouldn't say train them up because that makes me sound like i was a bit more omniscient all-knowing than i actually was but you know you just you would surround yourself with people that you trusted yeah and, and that's that's all it's been it's just been um picking people who for whatever reason are, are close to you and kind of knowing they're going to do the job because it's got to be there's got to be down uh, downsides to that there's got to be kind of you know it's got to be in, in a way, you know, they say you've got to be even more careful with people you know, uh, rather than going through the kind of formal finding the right person with the right abilities and stuff uh, when, when, you, when you're going to be relying on them. Has there been any kind of mistakes that you ended up working with people you thought, God, I wish well, I'd never I, done that? Yes, I, I wouldn't mention them. And I, I think when I became a lawyer, um, it, was a, it was quite a revelation in that when you are an artist, you are seeing things 
in a very tunnel vision type of way. You're focusing wholly on yourself. You've only got the the uh, the education process of your own experience own experiences in the industry and one or two people you're really close to who are prepared to open up and tell you the truth mm. rather than give you rather a sort of airbrush version of their own artistic experiences. Yeah. When you become a lawyer, it's, it's wholly different. It's like a view from the mountaintop. You represent a lot of people. You're privy to information about their careers that nobody else apart from their own management would be. And so, but, but actually you're probably privy to more information because I represent so many different people than, than any one manager possibly could. So, um, that did cause me, uh, to take a look at certain aspects of my own business. I did take a, uh, I did make a management change at that point for, for pretty much that reason, okay. because I felt it was time for, a, for a change and actually moved out of the, um, moved out of the ambit of people that were close to me, um, which was, a, it was, it was the right thing to do at the time. I don't want to necessarily talk about it in any more detail, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, ironically you, uh, when you tell people for the first time that you're a, a specialist music lawyer and you're a DJ, they do still sound quite far apart, but the, what I've learned through the experience of being a lawyer by being able, by being privy to this information about other artists' careers has been vastly beneficial to me as an artist. So there's been a sort of symbiotic relationship, if you like, between growing as a lawyer and actually regrowing myself as an artist. Do you think that part of your success has been based around be, being such a broad person, being clearly hungry to learn? I mean, I, I know you learned Spanish fluently because of all the time you spent in Ibiza. And we may, we may not even have time to talk much about Ibiza in the time we've got. But, you know, promoter, record, um, an A&R man, a producer, DJ, um, now a lawyer, is the fact that this scene was kind of new and was kind of undocumented and that you have the aptitude to, to really put some academic thought into it. Do you think that's part of your success? I think you've got to be hungry to learn and never so arrogant as to think you know it all because in, let's face it, in life we learn and learn and learn and then we then we pop our clogs, don't we? And that's that I think should be anybody's mentality towards life. Anybody think who thinks that, that they either know it all or that they've reached their the, their capacity for knowledge is is probably not living life to the full. And um, so I I just continue to learn every week with what I do. I might have been in the industry for much longer than most, but it doesn't mean I'm not uh, I I know everything far from it. I think there's been it's been a very challenging time to be in the music industry in particular, not, uh, notwithstanding in DJ land, um, the arrival of streaming, the arrival of playlists, the um, earlier than that, the kind of social media and the, and almost um, watching, watching how the, the means of promoting events, promoting artists, um, the way that royalties flow. I mean, there's just so much that's changed mm. in recent years alone. And I, and you've just, just got to absorb it and try and grow with it so talking about um you know the, the length of time that you've been doing this i just want to ask you a couple of questions about way 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 back at the beginning were you the only person in your circle of friends as a kid who was into all this were you the kind of weird guy who was into electronic music or was it all of you um it, it certainly wasn't only me i mean i probably um probably surround it you tend to if you've got a particular interest you tend to gravitate towards others with that same interest yeah. and we were all um a small group of us were absolutely obsessive about going out and finding records and then we'd hang out at each other's houses age sort of 15 16 and 17 and play them at horribly loud volumes um 
but no, there were a bunch of us. Okay. I don't know. And when I started promoting, uh, I was promoting with two or three of my school friends. It wasn't just me. I wasn't this sort of uh, whiz kid entrepreneur who went out and did it on my own. Far from it. There were a bunch of us. Okay. So yeah, again, there's more partnership going, stuff going on there, isn't there? Um, so um, were you a rebel as a kid, you know, to start promoting illegal raves that you're DJing at and all this kind of thing? Was there a rebellious streak or was it just kind of like, well, I want to play my music and no one's stopping me, so I'm going to get on with it? Well, I think, you know, I think we were a very early version of DIY culture. And I think that um, DIY culture is hugely important throughout the arts now, particularly given that there is a platform, albeit a very crowded marketplace for all musicians. Um, those that haven't created some sort of DIY marketplace for themselves will, will not go on being, to be signed to a record label and probably won't go on and be noticed. Um, you've got to, if other people aren't going to spot you, you've got to sort of create that for yourself. And um, I had certain advantages, um, inbuilt advantages. One, I was extremely young. When I started promoting events, I was about 16. And at 16, you have the largest social circle you'll ever have in your life. Uh, probably didn't realize just how lucky I was in that respect at the time. But you exploit that fact and you, um, yeah, you... Uh, and that's that really was the platform for everything else that followed uh, also came from a family where my dad had been a jobbing actor in and out of work when he was younger he actually was a tv director during my sort of teens but had had been that way when he was younger so understood what it was like to, to you know to be living from hand to mouth as a performer um a little bit diff different from being a dj but nevertheless was uh, understood that um and i think having supported parents who at least purport to understand what you're doing when you're doing something quite different and something quite edgy without question helped and at this time in your life you're a kind of middle-class kid you're, you're 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 training to to get into law you're promoting underground events at the same time uh, how did you fit in with the wheelers and dealers who were kind of uh, you know neck deep in that scene at the time uh, obviously your name judge jules comes from those days but um was it kind of a natural fit with, with you and the, the kind of underground promoters and everyone else who was involved? Well, I think, I think, um, I think that the scene at the time, and I was very, very immersed in it, um, the, the sort of illegal warehouse scene at the time, yeah. I'd go out, if I, I'd promote my own events with others. And then they weren't just my own events, but I'd promote, promote the events we were doing, probably uh, 20, between 15 and 20 gigs a year doing that. Then we do some club shows, but every other Friday and Saturday night would be out at other events. And, and the one thing that the music that, that that scene taught me was that there is, there is no identikit kind of, um, scenester. It was people from all walks of life. It was a very mixed bag of kind of, you know, ethnically and, and, um, sort of class wise and, you know, and sexually as well. So it was a, and not that I was, you know, attracted to it for the, by by virtue of its diversity, but it's just that's just the nature. Was, yeah, I, I remember it very well myself as well. And uh, look, I know you have to go shortly. There's lots of stuff I wanted to, to kind of squeeze in that we haven't got time for. I wanted to talk to you a bit more about what it was like being on pirate radio and Abitha. What I don't want to miss out on is uh, for you to tell us how your Judge Jules live. Um, is going because you're you're touring with it. I think it's a ten piece band, right? Playing club classics. Um, and I know you finished yeah. at the time of recording this a kind of club tour. How's that gone? Yeah, it's kind of club classics, but it's a very it's a very loose take on club classics. I mean, basically, what we've done is I've I've rearranged um, fifteen of my favourite records completely uh, to incorporate a kind of ja jazzy stroke funky band. Um, who it's all about solos, um, live musicians, uh, two vocalists. 
Um, so it's trying to take the kind of energy of a rave um, and the and the. I suppose the magic of the orchestra shows that exist mm. that have happened recently and marry the two together. Um, and how's it been? What kind of crowds are coming out to them? What's the atmosphere? Well, like? We've done it so far. We've done five. We've done a small t- tour of 500 capacity venues in five cities. We've done London, Birmingham, Manchester, Sheffield, Bristol, and. And we're now about to embark on doing um, five or six festivals this summer. We're just kind of setting up. We've been honing it as we've gone along. The reaction, uh, both in the in the venues and on social media, has been sensational. Because I, I, I genuinely think what we're doing has not been done by anybody before. Mm. You've got the kind of orchestra shows, which have a sense of wonderment about them to those that go and see these orchestras playing the records that really meant something to them 20 years ago but this is wholly different this has got the energy of now and it's got a much more sort of interactive feel about it than the orchestras where the music's amazing the atmosphere the the, the surroundings are surreal but it's not really there's no energy in particular coming from the dance from the from the stage less except perhaps for the um, for the conductor so it's it's a purely energetic experience and it's it's really worked well. Very proud. Are you, are you getting all age groups coming out? Are you getting people who remember the song? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So um, just a couple of little things to end off with then. I know your uncle is Rick Stein, uh, who is a, a famous chef, at least in uh, in the UK. So you can't use that one. Tell us something else about you that people might not know. Oh, it's just such a struggle because when you're, when you're <laughs> so at, the end of, at the end of a half an hour interview or thereabouts, when you've been quite... Uh, Quite You've revealed a lot of stuff. Um, you know, fundamentally, beyond an obsession with music and what I do, I'm a pretty boring chap who goes and watches the football, gets infuriated with Brexit like everybody else, um, and likes likes a good restaurant. But, you know, are there do you any... Cook? Do you cook like your, like your famous uncle, or is that not something that's carried across to you? Uh, I can cook, but I... Certainly not as well as him. <laughs> finally, look, Ibiza's in your heart. You, you must have DJed there for a longer period than nearly nearly anyone else. Um, and I know you've got you've got homes in the Balearic Islands. Is that where you would like to retire to at some point, decades in the future? Yes, although I think principal retirement zone would probably be Mallorca because um, I have somewhere there as well, and I am Mallorca is is slightly better for a city person i think a b3 is great for three or four months of the year but for me as somebody who's lived in it you know from london has lived in london all my life um the the lack of energy of a b3 outside those core summer months mm. is not quite for me whereas so kind of more country or small town people really love a b throughout season whereas mallorca has kind of got that sort of buzz of the city all year round but it's got a lot of the Balearic charm. But, you know, a combination of the two, I think, would just be perfect. Sounds awesome. Well, Judge Jules, uh, one of the one of the names that's really stayed right at the forefront for all the time that I've been involved in this scene. Thank you very much for taking time to speak to the podcast today. And uh, we wish you very well with the, the continuation through the summer. And I know you're playing some festivals with your live show and everything else that, uh, that comes your way in the future. Thank you very much for, for spending My great pleasure. Good to chat. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.